time this morning. We have been going through the book of Revelation, looking at the vision of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the vision that Christ has given to John the Apostle about the end days, the end times as we call them, and specifically the tribulation period in chapter 6 through 19. So we are in chapter 10 now. We have seen six of the seven trumpet judgments that come out of the seventh seal of the book that God gave to Christ, and Christ opened those seals. And so we are getting through the judgments of God. And the last couple seals, the fifth and I'm sorry, the last couple trumpets, the fifth and sixth, we saw the last couple weeks were just demonic oppression, first in torment, second in death. And um, now we come to a pause in chapter 10, actually, between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment. So we're going to read chapter 10 this morning and then look at this chapter as we continue our study in Revelation. So if you want to read along with me, just follow along, starting at verse 1 down through the end of the chapter. Chapter 10 of Revelation says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel, which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that are therein, and the earth, and the things that, are there, that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be, no, be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go, and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's have a minute of prayer before we go into our message this morning. Our Father, we just ask now for your wisdom to be bestowed upon us, that you would teach us through your Spirit as we again embark upon this journey through your Word, trying to learn and trying to understand the things that you've given us. Lord, you have a purpose for everything that's here. Your Word tells us that all of Scripture is inspired and is good for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So, Lord, use your word this morning as we look together, as we listen, as we give our attention to you, that you would accomplish your work through it in us, that you would do those things that you want, which are profitable for us. And, Lord, I pray that you would use me. I'm just a weak vessel, a human who's fallible, and yet 
you can, through your power, through your spirit, use me to speak your truth. And so, Lord, that's what I ask today, that you would fill me with your spirit, that your word would be proclaimed with boldness, that we would be taught and challenged by the truth that you've given us now. And, Lord, we want your work to be done. We want you to be glorified. That is our purpose. And so we just ask for you to accomplish that now. We submit ourselves to you during this time now. We thank you that you will do what you're going to do, that you will have your way, and that you will be glorified. And we, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Before we get into Revelation chapter 10, I want to go back to Psalm 94 very quickly. I was reading this week in Psalms and came across Psalm 94, and I've read this many times before. But in the context of what we're studying in Revelation through the judgments of God upon the earth, I just wanted to read this through verse 7, Psalm 94, 1 through 7. The psalmist says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, the murder, and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. And it goes on in that psalm. It talks about how the wicked basically will just assume God doesn't care, and God doesn't see them, and nothing is going to happen to them, but God will respond. And in the context of Revelation, we've seen the prayers of the saints, the martyred saints, as well as the saints on earth, asking God that same question, how long, how long, how long? And that answer finally comes here in chapter 10. And God's judgment has been being poured out upon the earth during the tribulation period. John has recorded some of that for us. But as we get to the end of chapter 10... The saints who have been praying that prayer, how long, O Lord, their prayer is answered. And the judgment of God, the final judgment of God, is about to be poured out as we get further into Revelation. But the answer comes in chapter 10. But as we look at chapter 10, here we have actually a pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. As we saw, there was a pause between the sixth and seventh seals. And here we have the same thing. This is a pattern that God gives us. And it gives us a little bit of insight into the working of God behind the scenes, as it were, again. And what he's doing in the lives of people and what he's doing in heaven while all of this judgment is being poured out upon the earth. And here John is given this vision uh, from the earth. He's on earth, but he's given this vision of God's actions in heaven and on the earth. And here, all of a sudden, the judgments stop. There's no record of judgments here in chapter 10, as we've seen in the previous chapters. But John is given this vision of an angel coming down from heaven, and he said he's closed with a cloud. And there's significance to this, because the focus of this chapter is on this little book. And we're going to look at what this little book signifies, what it means to John, what it means to God, and what it is as far as God's plan for the earth. But it starts with this angel in verse 1, another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. 
Now, these verses, as I mentioned, serve as kind of an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. In the seventh trumpet, when we'll get to that in the middle of chapter 11, that is opened and then it begins a series of seven bold judgments that are quickly poured out one after another. And that happens between Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 16. But God's intention in these pauses is to comfort and encourage his people that he still remembers them, that he still cares about them, that he's still working on our behalf. Even in the midst of the judgment of the tribulation, God still remembers his people. And to remind us that God is in control of all of this, that he will be victorious in the end, and as his people, we will emerge victorious and overcomers in the end if we trust him. And so here's one of those pauses in chapter 10 to remind us of God's working in our lives, of God's working behind the scenes, even though it seems like the whole world is falling apart around us. You know, we look around and we see all of the evil that's being pervaded in our world today, and we have to remember that it's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation period, that Satan is going to run rampant like never before, that mankind is going to be evil, it, it just act out on that evil. It's not that they're going to be any more evil in their hearts. The evil is already there. But that evil will be de- demonstrated in a way never before because the restraining hand of God has been removed. But God's still in control. Okay? Here the angel comes down. John sees this mighty angel come down from heaven. It says he's clothed with a cloud. A rainbow is upon his head. His face, as it were, the sun. His feet as pillars of fire. So John relates this vision of this angel, and I want to focus on the angel for just a couple minutes for us to understand what, is, what this signifies for us, or what does it signify for John, for the people who are believers, who are upon the earth, okay? Let me look at his appearance, first of all, in, chat, in verse 1, he says, he was clothed with cloud, his rainbow upon his head, his face shone like the sun, his feet, or legs, literally, are like pillars of fire, We've seen description like this or similar to this before in chapter 1 when John describes the exalted Christ. But I want to point this out. This is not Jesus Christ here in chapter 10 of Revelation that John is describing. Let me give you some reasons why I believe this is not Jesus Christ. There are commentators who think this is another appearance of Jesus Christ in John's vision, but I don't believe that. Here's why. Because while the angel's description does bear some resemblance to the appearance of Jesus Christ, there's some differences here. Okay, first of all, it says that he's clothed with a cloud. The angel is clothed with a cloud. Jesus is not clothed with a cloud. He is going to come in the clouds. He ascended from earth in a cloud, the Bible tells us, after his resurrection. The angel stood there and told the apostles, as you've seen Jesus go, so he will come again in a cloud. We are going to go meet him as the church at the rapture in the clouds where he will be. Okay, so Jesus is not just clothed in a cloud. This angel is said to be clothed in a cloud. Then it has this rainbow around his head. And the shining face, or his face glowing, represents that he is coming from the presence of God, not necessarily that he is God. The rainbow represents the covenant of God. Remember the rainbow that God put in the sky after the flood and promised Noah and all mankind he would never destroy the, flood, the earth again with a flood. 
And that was his eternal covenant. And this rainbow we saw above the throne of God. Now here we see it above the angel's head as kind of a marker. But it's to remind us of God's covenant promise to us as, as human beings, not just as believers. But God's covenant promise that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. What's interesting is this. The greatest judgment of God in all of history is found right here in Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. There is no more severe judgment in all of history than this. And yet nowhere in Revelation will you see that God floods the earth to destroy it. He brings fire. He brings hail. There's earthquakes. There's all kinds of devastation. There's demonic forces, but no floods. God is faithful in his promises. And the, the rainbow around the angel's head reminds us of that faithfulness of God. The shining of his face is akin to the shining of the face of Jesus Christ that we saw in chapter 1. But remember when Moses went up on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai to get the commandments, to, to visit with God. When he came down with the commandments, the Bible tells us in Exodus that his face shone so much that the people couldn't look upon him. Not because he was God, but because he had been in the presence of God. And so here this angel is coming from being in the presence of Jesus Christ himself as his messenger bringing a message to the earth in this vision. And so this isn't Jesus Christ that we're seeing. This is an angel, a mighty angel, okay, coming to do the... the, uh, the will of God, the will of Christ in this area. It describes his feet and legs as pillars of fire. Again, we saw in Revelation chapter 1, Christ, the exalted Christ, coming as the judge. His feet and legs were as burnished brass coming out of the fire. Very similar uh, a description here. But rep- what it represents is what's important because the angel is coming with the message of God's judgment. And that's what this legs and feet of fire or of burnished brass represent. We saw that in chapter 1 where the feet and legs of Jesus Christ as burnished brass represented him as judge, bringing judgment upon the earth. And so the angel here is bringing this message of judgment. That's what's been going on up to this point in Revelation. That is what is going to continue. And so with this pause even, we have the angel coming down, and there's a little book in his hand. This is the book of judgment, of God's judgment upon the earth. And so he comes as God's representative in judgment or to deliver the message of judgment. Another point that we need to understand is that Christ is never described in the book of Revelation as an angel. You'll never find that reference. You find references to Christ as the exalted one, the judge, the Lion of Judah. There's lots of different names that are given to Christ in Revelation, but not ever referred to as an angel here. Now, in the Old Testament, Christ did come in pre-incarnate appearances to the earth. He came to see Abraham to give him the promise of Isaac. And when he came, it says, the angel of the Lord, many times Christ appeared on earth in human form before he came as a baby. And it calls him the angel of the Lord. So he's referred to that uh, in that way in the, New, in the Old Testament. But after he came in the New Testament as a human being, lived his life, died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and then ascended to heaven where he was exalted by the Father, you never have him referred to as an angel again. And that's the case here in Revelation. 
Jesus Christ is not an angel. He's not referred to as an angel. He is the Son of God, the exalted one. And so this is not Jesus Christ here. If we want to look just at the language, John says, I saw another mighty angel. Another, in the Greek, is the word that means one of the same kind. Now, we've been looking at angels. John has described angels, numerous angels for us through these passages. And here he says, there's another angel still talking about an angel. This is a mighty angel. We saw a mighty angel back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. That was not Christ. This is not Christ either. And the last point about understanding this is not Christ is that Jesus Christ is not going to come back to earth until we get to chapter 19. Okay, he came in his first advent as a baby, lived as a normal human being. 33 years was on this earth and was crucified and died in the grave, came out of the grave, and then went to heaven. He will not come back to earth again until his second coming. Now you say, what about the rapture? He's not going to touch earth. He's going to come in the clouds, and we're going to go up to meet him in the clouds. But Jesus Christ will not come and set his feet on this earth again until he comes at his second coming at the end of the tribulation period when he comes to conquer his enemies and set up his earthly kingdom. And then he's going to come, and both of his feet are going to be put on the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us that very clearly. Here, this angel comes down, and as we'll see, his feet, one goes in the sea, one goes on land. So the angel comes and steps on the earth. It can't be Christ because it's not time for his second coming yet. So there's lots of evidence here that I believe this does not refer to Jesus Christ. This is a mighty angel, just like John said, who's coming to deliver the message and the judgment of God upon the earth. So that's his description. But then look at his actions starting at verse 2. It says, And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. And then in verse 3, he cries with a loud voice, as if a lion uh, is roaring. Okay, these actions break. Let's look at these and break them down. It says, he had in his hand a little book opened. Now, there's disagreement among commentators about what this little book is. Some think it's the same book that we saw in chapter 5, that Jesus Christ came and took out of the Father's hand, that had the seven seals, that he began to open. We've seen that in chapter 6 through 9, the seven seals of the book being opened. Okay? Some say this is the same book, that it's the book of judgment. Some say it's not the same book. And here's the argument for it not being the same book. The Greek here uses a different word. I'm sorry, the author uses a different word in the Greek. In chapter 5, the word for book is biblion, meaning book. Here, the word is Bibliridion, which is small book. So it's a different Greek word. That doesn't necessarily automatically negate the fact that it could be the same book, though. Now, what this is exactly is a little book. (laughs) We don't have any other explanation for it here. The Bible doesn't give us any other details about this little book. Okay, I'm inclined to lean toward that it may be the same book that we saw in the hand of Christ. Remember that scroll that he took out of the hand of God the Father on the throne. And he began to break the seals. And that scroll was the title deed to the earth and the universe, God's creation that Satan had usurped authority over in sin. 
And as Satan unleash or un, uh, breaks open those seals, he unleashes judgment upon the earth. But the purpose of those judgments are to, number one, get a, a, the attention of the people on the earth to let them know who truly is the ruler of the earth and the universe. And number two, to bring judgment upon people who have rejected his authority on the earth and who are worshiping Satan. Because if you don't accept God's authority, then you're under the authority of Satan. That's the only choices we have. We saw that last week. So this little book very well could be that scroll that Christ has opened that was in the hand of the Father. And it's represented as being open, as we see in verse 2, the book open, because Christ has opened all the seals now. We've already gone through all seven seals. Christ has opened them. In fact, these trumpet judgments are part of the seventh seal that has been opened. And then out of the seven tr- seventh trumpet judgment will come seven bowl judgments. But all of that is part of the seventh seal. So the book is open. It very well could be this open book that Jesus Christ has broken all the seals on. It is named as a smaller book for the purpose of symbolism because later on in the chapter that we're going to read that the angel says to John, take and eat it. In fact, the voice of God comes to John and says, take and eat it. And if we have this large scroll, I mean, for the purpose of this vision, that would be difficult for him to eat it. We'd have to have a large pause, be like sitting at the buffet, you know, well, it's going to take me a while, so just hold on here. But he represents it as a small book for this purpose of the symbolism of John eating it. And we'll look at that in just a minute. So the possibility exists that this is the same scroll that we saw, the title deed to the universe containing the judgments of God as he reclaims his creation from the usurped authority of Satan. The book is also little because as a record of God's judgments in reclaiming the universe, there's very little time left. We again see that in this chapter. We're getting to the end of these seven years of God's judgment during the tribulation period. And so there's not much left. And in fact, I mean, if you take the seven years of tribulation in comparison to the rest of history, it is a very short time. And so these judgments, even though they seem to be extreme and great upon the earth, are all packed into a very small period of time. And so it could be just a little time that's represented in this book. We've completed seven seals already. We've are completed six of the seven trumpet judgments. We are about to embark on the seventh judgment. And then out of the seventh judgment comes seven bold judgments very quickly in rapid succession. So we're not talking about much time left on earth. And that's why I believe John describes this as a little book. Because not much time is left. In Romans chapter 9 verse 28... The Bible says, talking about the Lord's work, he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Paul was talking about the judgment that God was going to bring upon the earth in this period. And he calls it a very short work because it is the last judgments of God upon the earth in all of history. So I believe, anyway, that this book could be very Possibly the the same book, the same scroll, that title deed to the universe that uh, Jesus Christ took from the hand of the Father. Now, I'm not adamant about that. I'm not going to come to fights over that, okay? Just from the evidence that I see in Scripture, 
that's where I lean, but it's possible that it's not. It could be another book of judgment that God has given to the angel to give to John. Nevertheless, we know it is a book of judgment. Okay, We know it is a book of the record of God bringing judgment upon the earth, and we'll see that in just a minute. But then the angel comes down in verse 2. He brings this little book, and then he sets his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the land. That's a second action. Now, the angel is given this book by Christ. He stands on the sea and the land, and he claims both the sea and the land for God, just as ancient explorers would claim a new territory for their king. My kids have studied history and the explorers, and when they came and explored and found a new land, they would plant the flag and you know, put their feet on that land and claim it for their home country and for the king. Uh, Neil Armstrong did something very similarly the first time that man went to the moon and set foot on the moon. He set feet on the moon, and you remember that grand statement, you know, one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. But then they planted the American flag on the moon because it was new territory claimed by that explorer. And that's exactly what this angel is doing here. It's not unknown territory, but the angel steps one foot on sea, one foot on the land, With the book in his hand, this book, again, the title deed to the universe, if in fact that's what it is, reclaiming the authority of God over his creation. And that's the symbolism in this angel standing on the land and sea. In Revelation chapter 11, we'll get to that hopefully next week, it says, The seventh angel sounded, there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So all of the kingdoms of the world will be reclaimed by God in the seventh trumpet, which is about to happen. And it happens as this angel stands on the land and sea, reclaiming his creation for God the father, the the true owner of all the land. And it also demonstrates that as God spills out this final judgment, there's nowhere on earth that people can go to escape the judgment. Go to the land, go to the sea, what's left? The sky, God's already there. You can't escape God's judgment. But God is reclaiming what is rightfully his here. And he's using or sending this angel to do his work for him and claim, reclaim the earth from the usurped power of Satan. In verse 3, we have the cry of the angel. 3 through 7, it talks about what the angel said, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. We'll stop there for a second. As the angel is standing there on the land and the sea, he opens his mouth and utters this cry, and John says, it's as a giant lion when he roareth. Now, I want you to to put yourself in John's position, okay? He's, in a sense, on on the earth, looking at this vision as it takes place, and this angel comes and sets one foot on land and one foot on, on the sea. Now, from John's perspective, this probably was not just a normal human size figure, Okay, this was a massive giant angel that comes down from heaven. He says a strong angel. So we can assume that maybe it was larger than a normal human being, but obviously big enough to step on land and sea to claim the earth for Christ. And now he speaks. And what would his voice sound like? John says 
It sounds like a giant lion roar. Now, I don't know if you've ever been close to a lion, maybe at the zoo or safari or something, when it roars at full strength. Okay, I've heard it once in my life, and I was on the other side of the fence about 10 or 15 feet from the lion, and it blew me away. Okay, when you stand that close and hear that roar, you realize the strength and power of that beast. But John says that's what the angel's voice sounded like, and it echoes throughout the whole earth, this lion roar. He goes on, he says, When he had cried, seven, utter, seven thunders uttered their voices. The roaring and the thunder are symbolism in the Bible of God's coming judgment. You see references to thunder, to God roaring all through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament prophecies. And they all have to do with God's judgment. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30, it says, Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, This is God telling Jeremiah to prophesy, and here's what he's to prophesy. The Lord shall roar from on high, and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And so here is the roar of God's judgment by this angel upon the earth and upon all its inhabitants. In Hosea, in Joel, Amos, all of them refer to the judgment cry of God as a loud roar. And MacArthur, John MacArthur says this, The angel speaks clearly but with great volume to capture the attention of people and cause fear. Now I mentioned God brings catastrophe God allows disaster and suffering on the earth to get our attention. It's the result of sin, but in that suffering, God wants us to look up to him. And here he uses the proclamation of coming judgment, this roar across the earth and then the responding thunder to get people's attention. Remember how much tribulation they have gone through already, how much suffering they've endured, how many people have died. And now God again brings this angel to attract the attention of of the people who are left on earth. But in the response of this angel's cry, we have the seven thunders that utter their voices. This is not the angel crying thunder. This is the thunder that responds to the angel's cry. Now, thunder, again, is often a harbinger of God's judgment in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 9, in Egypt, when Moses went and proclaimed to Pharaoh, let my people go, It says, the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire to rain down upon the earth in Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention. The thunder was a big part of that. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord thundered with a great thunder against the Philistines. And it says it discomfited them. We studied this morning a little bit about Jonathan and the battle against the Philistines. There was no thunder there, but the Lord discomfited his enemies as they trusted him. But in 1 Samuel 7, the Lord thunders against the Philistines and destroys them. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts will punish Israel's enemies with thunder and earthquake and loud noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. That sounds like some of the judgments we've already seen. And in fact, it is. But God thunders against his enemies. And so this thunder is not the voice of the angel, it's the response to the angel's cry. But it's not just an unintelligible noise. It's not as we would hear during a rainstorm if you go out and a thunder thunders and it makes this loud noise. 
We have no idea what it's saying, if it's saying anything, but John understood it completely. This was an intelligible verbal response in the thunder to the cry of the angel. Because John says in verse 4, I was about to record the cry of the angel and the thunder's response, but then a voice from heaven said, no, seal these things up and don't write them down. John had been told to record everything that he saw up to this point, except this particular event. God says, don't record that. Now, there's been many commentators who speculate about what the thunder said or what the angel cried. God doesn't want us to know that. Otherwise, he would have told John to record it. But the fact that he told John not to record it specifically means God doesn't want us to know. So it's fruitless for us to try to figure out and say, well, you know, let's see if we can decide what this angel cried or what the thunder responded. Maybe it was the judgment of God. Maybe it was the rest of the book of Revelation. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. We can do maybe it was all day, and we're not going to come up with the right answer. The answer is God doesn't want us to know, and we're going to have to be satisfied with that. That's why John didn't record it. We don't have to have all the answers and all the details. God has given us everything that we need to know. Now, there might be a lot of things that we want to know, but that's up to God. We don't need to know what the angel said here or what the thunder said in response. That's God's business. And so we're going to leave it with him. And that's exactly what he told John. Don't record that. You heard it, but don't record it. Now, that's not the first time in in the Bible that we see God bringing someone into a vision or into an, an event where he tells them, don't record these things. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel had this vision from God, and God said, seal these things up in the book. Don't spread them around. Don't let people see it. So God had a purpose for showing Daniel, but then he said, I don't want you to tell anybody what you saw. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about being taken up into the second heaven. And he says, I don't know if I was in this body or out of this body. He said, but God took me up into second heaven, and he saw things and heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. And so God did not let him record for us in Scripture what he saw and what he heard. And that's okay. Now, if you have a problem with that, take it up with God. Okay? The Bible doesn't give us those details. And here's one of those examples in, John, in, in Revelation where John is not allowed to record for us what he heard and saw. We hear, we know the angel cried, we know the thunder responded, and that's all we know. And so we have to leave it there. Job, finally, after all of Job's tribulation that he went through, and then his, I don't want to call it an argument really, but his discussion with God in the last part of that book, over the last four or five chapters, in Job 37 Job comes to this conclusion, verse 5, he says, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. And it may be that God told John, nobody's going to understand this, so there's no reason to write it down. Even if you recorded it, people aren't going to get it. So I'm not going to allow you to write it down. And so we have to leave it that way. So John hears this angel cry. He hears the response of the thunder. And then the angel lifts up his hands in verse 5. He says, The angel which I saw stand upon the sea, upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, 
Verse 6, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, the earth and the things that are therein are, the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, verses 5 and 6 describe this angel standing on the land and sea, holding the book in his hand, and then he raises his hand to heaven and takes an oath. And it describes this oath, and it says, He swear by him that liveth forever and ever, talking about God, Jesus Christ, specifically. Okay? So this angel takes an oath here. And it's Christ that's described here in verse 6. Him that liveth forever and ever. We've seen that phrase applied to Christ already. Who created heaven and things that are therein, earth, things that are therein, the sea and things that are therein. That means everything that was created was created by Christ. Now, we know that from Scripture. In John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Talking about Jesus Christ. That chapter in John 1 starts with that the word came down and became man. He, became, he was among us, but we comprehended him not. But that word that it's talking about is Jesus Christ. And here, or in John chapter 1, it says, that word, Jesus Christ, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So the angels swearing by Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him were all things created, talking about Jesus Christ again, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created for, by him, and for him. So we know that this angel comes and now he's standing there taking an oath to heaven by Jesus Christ or in the front of Jesus Christ. And again, another evidence that this is not Christ because if it were Christ, he wouldn't swear by the one who lives in heaven. He would swear by himself. Okay? God, in Hebrews, it tells us, Hebrews chapter 6, because he could swear by no other or by no greater, swore by himself. Okay, so if this is Jesus Christ, he would be swearing by himself. But the angel takes this oath by the name or by the uh, accountability to Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 of Revelation, we read this however long ago that we were in chapter 4. The 24 elders bow before the throne of God. And they say, sing this song, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, in chapter 4, the elders are worshiping God the Father. John chapter 1 and, John, and uh, Colossians chapter 1 tell us that Jesus Christ created all things. That means Jesus is God. They are one and the same. Separate persons, same being, okay? But here the angel swears before Jesus Christ, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now here's an interesting note. Um, and John MacArthur brings this out in his commentary. He says, some people suggest that the angel taking an oath here violates Christ's prohibition in Matthew chapter 5 against taking oaths. Now, I recorded for you in your bulletin the little pastor's thought about taking oaths, okay? But we have to put it in context, and we have to put it in perspective. Jesus wasn't condemning all oaths. 
okay, or swearing by the Father. In fact, his words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 37 are this, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And he says, obviously, an angel, a holy angel of God could not violate or do something contrary to God's commands for him. Now, we know at the beginning, the angels rebelled, Satan, following Satan, okay? And they were thrown out of heaven. But the angels that are left are perfectly faithful. And so this angel is not violating any command of Christ by taking this oath, okay? And we understand that because when Christ gave this command not to take an oath in Matthew chapter 5, he was looking at the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and saying, look at what they're doing as far as taking these oaths. Now, have you ever noticed that the people who always have to say, I swear by the name of God or I swear on my mother's grave, usually they're the ones that do all of this oath-taking and swearing and usually they're the ones that are the most untrustworthy in the rest of the things they say, Right? Because they know you don't believe them, and so they have to swear to make you think that they're telling the truth this time. Now, I'm not saying every time somebody takes an oath that's the case. I'm just saying it's ironic that in our lives as human beings, the people we come across who are always saying, oh, I swear this is true, I swear this is true, we doubt them from the outset because of their reputation for not telling the truth. That's not the case here, Okay. That's what Jesus was saying about swearing. He says, don't become like the Pharisees who perpetuate all of this falsehood in the name of religion even, and then have to swear by God to convince people that it's true. Just say what's true all the time, and then people won't doubt you. You won't need to swear. That was Jesus' command. So this angel is not violating this command by taking an oath before God. He's actually saying, by the testimony of God the Father and Jesus Christ, what I'm about to say is the word of God. He's not just giving his own message here. He's swearing and saying, this comes from God the Father and God the Son. This is God's message. Now, again, swearing, taking oaths is not bad. In context. In Genesis chapter 22, God swore to Abraham. He made an oath to Abraham as he gave him a promise of blessing and to multiply his seed. Luke chapter 1, verse 73, refers to that oath which God swore to Abraham. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, we were studying this in Bible study just last week. Peter, in his sermon, refers to the oath that God made to David to raise up Christ to sit on his throne forever. So even God makes oaths to people or takes oaths, okay? And so this angel is doing nothing more than attesting to the fact that this is the truth of God. And I raise my hand like we do in court and say, so help me God, I will tell the truth. That's basically what the angel is saying here. By God's authority, I'm giving you the truth from God's mouth. 
Now, what is this message that he takes an oath before God for? Look at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. That there should be time no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Here's the message. Here's the message that we can assume is in the book. Remember, this is a book of God's judgment. And here's the message that the angel is now proclaiming to John and to the inhabitants of the earth and to all the saints, both dead and alive, who have been praying for God to bring vengeance upon his enemies. Now remember, back in chapter, five, chapter 6, we saw the saints under the altar of God praying to God, how long? I read you the prophecy in chapter, chapter 94 of Psalm that gives us that same prayer. And it's this prayer of saints, even today on earth. How long, God, are you going to let evil continue to control the world, continue to persecute those who are trying to follow you and destroy your work? And here's the answer. There should be time no longer, the end of verse 6. Here's the answer to all those prayers. The angel brings it from God's mouth. He swears by God and says, I know there's been delay up to this point. I know God has told you to wait, but there will no longer be a delay. God's judgment is about to be poured out in earnest. The final judgment is going to come upon all of God's enemies, and they will be destroyed. That's what he says in verses 6 and 7. That's this important message by which he has to swear by heaven that this is the ma- from the mouth of God. This phrase that there should be time no longer at the end of verse 6, it doesn't mean that time is going to cease. Okay, I've seen a couple commentaries that say, well, this means that time is about to end. Well, I don't think so because we still have at least a little bit of time left in the tribulation period. We know that has to go the full seven years, and that's not going to end until Christ comes back to earth physically. But then there's another thousand years that Christ has his kingdom upon the earth. Isn't that time? If he's measured in years, then it has to be time. Time doesn't stop when Christ comes back. It's still an earthly kingdom. And so time will continue on. So this phrase can't mean that time is going to stop here or that it's just going to cease to exist. What it means is that there is a little bit of time left in this great tribulation, in the judgment that God is bringing upon the earth, when all of God's enemies will be conquered, will be punished, that God's vengeance will be completed upon them. And there's not going to be any more delay in answering the prayer of the saints for God's vengeance upon sin. This is the final judgment, the angel says. And look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, what is the focus of many of them? You go through Ezekiel and Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, all of them, Zechariah, they all talk about and prophesy about the end times, specifically the seven years of tribulation and then the kingdom of Christ to follow that. That is the mystery of God. How he's going to fulfill all of this judgment against sin to bring in the perfect reign of Christ on the earth. And it's all going to be finished in this seventh trumpet. 
That's what the angel says. Here's the last step, folks. Here's the answer you've been waiting for, the finality of God's judgment poured out upon the earth so that sin can finally be conquered and Christ can set up his kingdom that has been promised for thousands of years. That's what the Jews were looking for. I mean, that's what any follower of Christ was looking for, for Christ's kingdom. And the angel says, no more delay. As we begin this seventh trumpet, this is the end. Now, a mystery that he uses here, this mystery of God, is just something that God has previously not revealed but now is ready to reveal. There are many mysteries in the Old Testament. The the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. They had no idea what the church was. In fact, as far as the Old Testament Jews were concerned and Old Testament believers, Israel was it. That was where God's promises and God's blessing were going to be poured out to the earth for all eternity. And it's true. Israel was that, but Israel rebelled against God. And so God paused their history, if you will, when uh, Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And then from that time on, the center of Israel, Jerusalem, has been controlled by Gentile nations. Even to this point, Jerusalem is not completely controlled by the Jews. And this is called the time of the Gentiles. And so this is the great pause in God's working in Israel. And we call it, since Christ's time came, since Christ came and he died and went to heaven, then the church began. So the church age is there. And God now has opened his redemption to Gentiles as well as as Jews in the church. But he tells us in scripture that his whole purpose for the church is to make Israel jealous to regain their attention, to focus on him, to turn back to him, to realize that they're missing blessings because of their rebellion. These blessings are now being poured out on the church, not that the church has replaced Israel, but that the church has become the bride of Christ, which should have been the place of Israel. And they're missing out in the tribulation when the church is gone is to bring Israel back to that reality. God wants to restore them, and he will. But first, they have to go through judgment. And that's the whole point of the seven years of tribulation, is to judge Israel and get their attention. But that's the mystery. The church is a mystery of God. Nobody understood that until you got to the to Pentecost, really. And then it took 100 years of apostles, almost 100 years of apostles' writings, to kind of flesh out that idea of the church and what it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like And now we understand it because we have it recorded for us in Scripture. Old Testament saints didn't. Salvation was a mystery. The rapture, I mean, still kind of is a mystery to us. Even to New Testament saints in the early church, they didn't get the rapture. Paul explained it to them in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. They didn't get it all. So it's still kind of a mystery. The incarnation of Christ. Somebody tell me how somebody can be born on this earth and be 100% man and 100% God. Go ahead. I'll, I'll step down. If you have a good explanation for that, you can come up and tell us, okay? And I, and I'm, I want to listen because I don't get it yet. It doesn't make sense to me. How can somebody be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? That's a mystery. We'll understand that when we get to heaven because God will reveal it to us. And so this mystery of his judgment in the tribulation period to restore Israel is this mystery that now he's about to finish. And... 
not just in the restoration of Israel, but in bringing vengeance upon the enemies of God at the same time. And here the mystery will be finished in the seventh trumpet judgment that we'll see in chapter 11. God reveals his mysteries in his own time and in his own way. Here, one of the final mysteries of God is going to be revealed during that tribulation period. In verse 8, the John eats the little book. The voice which he heard, this is the voice of God, we presume. The voice which he heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And he took the book and out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey and as soon as I had eaten it my belly was bitter the voice which previously had forbidden him to record the thunderings and the cry of the angel now tells him to go and take the book and eat it okay now what we see here is symbolic okay it's not a command for Christians to literally eat the Bible okay you would be hurting if you did that that's not the command. It's not a literal thing. There are many references, in, especially in the Psalms, to God's word being sweet as honey. God's word, taste and see that the Lord is good. So ingesting God's word. And here we have another picture of this. That John is told to take the book of God's judgment and eat it. This book that's in the angel's hand. Um, Ezekiel was told to take the book of judgment. When in the vision, and eat it. Same result. In his mouth, it was sweet as honey. And in, when it hit his belly, it was bitter. And that's exactly what happens with John. He goes, and he says to the angel, give me the book. Now, the angel doesn't hand him the book. The angel says what to him? Come and take it. See, God doesn't force his word on us. God wants us to come and take it. He has given it to us, it's accessible to us, but it's up to us to come and take it. We have to put forth some effort, and John here had to step forward and literally take it from the angel. The angel was not going to hand-feed him this book of the Lord. And God is not going to hand-feed us his word if we're too lazy to put, some forth, put forth some effort to try to read and learn it ourselves. Now, God will do the work if we do that. He will use his word as the power that it is, the power to bring men to salvation, the power to change lives, the power that the Holy Spirit has in us for us to accomplish the work that God has called us to. That all comes from the word of God. But unlike some false prophets, God does not pour his wisdom into us when we're asleep and then we wake up and have everything we need. We have to work at it. John told us, he told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. Study, that's work. Now, believe me, I understand that. Okay? Somebody recently asked me, how much time do you spend studying and preparing for your messages? And it differs week to week. But I, I mean, as an average, I probably spend between 12 and 15 hours on one message. Because I don't want to get it wrong. Okay, I want to find out as much as I can, not just of the word of God, but what teachers before me have learned and what they can pass on to me. Now, I don't take their word as gospel. The, the Bible is gospel. But believe me, it takes work. 
And it's not just for the pastor to do that work. It's for all of us. Now, I'm not saying, okay, you've got to quit your job and spend 12 to 15 hours a week studying God's word. Okay? I can guarantee you if you do, it'll be a blessing to you. But we are all called to work at ingesting the word of God. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, I did my reading for today. Let's throw the Bible back on the shelf and live my life. That means when you take and eat it, when you take and eat food, you don't just take the food and pass it by your mouth and, yeah, that's good enough. You ingest it, and then it breaks down in your body, and all the nutrients come out, and it's absorbed into all of your cells, and that's where you get your energy from. This works the same way with the Bible. We take it in. We ingest it, in a sense. We break it down. What does it actually mean? Not what does it mean to me, but what is God saying to me? What does he want me to do? What does he want my life to be like? See, it takes work to get that, and that's what this represents for John. Take and eat the book. And he says, it shall make thy belly bitter, and it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. But this is the response of every true believer to the judgment of God. I mean, the prayers of God's people are, God, avenge evil, please. Bring us into eternal blessing, right? Eternal blessing is not going to start until evil is avenged. And so the blessing, the sweet in our mouth part of it is, wow, God is a good God. He's delivered us from all this judgment. He's going to bless us beyond measure. I mean, we're going to spend eternity with him. That's that unfathomable. But then we realize how many people are going to be judged. Even judgment upon God's chosen people, Israel. As we co- will continue to see in these final judgments and through the judgments of the tribulation period, two-thirds of surviving Jews on the earth will be destroyed and killed. Only a third that are alive at the beginning of the tribulation will remain. That's sorrowful. I mean, that should cause us to grieve. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He was looking at all of these Jewish brethren of his, he was a Jew, He knew the promises that God had given to them, the blessings that were promised to them, the great things that God could do through them if they just obeyed and accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And he says, I'm grieved because they're just rejecting it. He says, I wish I could take my salvation and trade it away so they could be saved and I would go to hell. That's how much I grieve for them. See, that's the bitterness that that God's word brings to us. When we realize the extent of God's judgment, and the severity of God's judgment upon sin, upon people who do not believe. And all of us know people like that. And every single one of us, like I said last week, knows people today that tomorrow could be in hell. Does that make you grieve? It should. And that's what John is experiencing here. He realizes, as he eats this book of the coming judgment of God in these last final days of the tribulation, how severe it is, how many people are going to perish without Christ and go to an eternal judgment in hell, and it just makes him sorrowful. 
His belly was bitter. That pit in your stomach, you know? And so the prophecy and fulfillment of God's final judgment is both sweet and bitter to believers, as it was to John. And then in verse 11, he's told once again that he's to prophesy about what he's to receive from Christ, the final judgments which are to take place. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. He's not done. The angel tells John, You're not done. You're still going to prophesy. What is he going to prophesy? The rest of the book of Revelation, the coming judgment of God in the seventh trumpet, and in the seven bold judgments that are going to be poured out of that. So he's going to prophesy again. And he says this prophecy, not just what's to come, but everything that's in Revelation, is to all people, all nations, all tongues, all kings. Nobody's left out. It's relevant to everyone. All of us need to hear it. And so we see that these prophecies relate to everyone, not just to God's chosen people, Israel. It's first to them, but it relates to all of us. Again, the focus of God's chosen people, Israel, in the tribulation, God's trying to get their attention specifically. But as he does that, many others will be saved as well. And as we get to this final period of the tribulation period, when these judgments, final judgments, are going to be poured out in earnest upon the earth, this is Israel's final chance to repent. This is their last opportunity before eternity is upon them. And as you begin chapter 11 next week, God brings two extraordinary witnesses to bring them that truth and again challenge their inattention to God's working in their lives. But you'll have to wait till next week to get to those two witnesses. So I'm going to leave you with the cliffhanger again. Okay, in the middle here of this pause, God's going to reveal these two witnesses to us at the beginning of chapter 11. So we're going to stop there and come back and revisit chapter 11 next week as we find out about these two witnesses. So let's pray today as... Uh, as we finish up. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you've taught us in it. And Lord, it may seem like some of these things are far off, that we know that we're not going to experience them as believers, but there's a message to us that all around us are people are going to have to go through this judgment. And I pray, Lord, again, that you would just give us a compassion for them, that you would teach us how important it is to spread your truth, to prophesy to them the truth of your judgment coming, that they may escape it as Jude says, pulling them out of the fire. Lord, just give us a heart for unsaved people. But at the same time, Lord, help us to continue to be faithful, following you, trusting you, going through the persecution of our own lives, being overcomers, and looking forward to that crown of life that we will receive when you appear in the last days. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Help us now as we go from this place to not forget it, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. May you get the glory in our lives and the, and the praise for everything that's done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with hymn number 432, Rescue the Perishing. Rescue the Perishing, 432, a call again for us to not be so focused on ourselves and the blessings God has given us in salvation.